You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. Finally, with this episode's guest, I'm acknowledged not just as your podcast host, but maybe as your very own weeping, crying, sobbing yogi. first connected to this episode's guest a few years ago while doing some research online looking for funding to support our 501c3 nonprofits prison program. And after I found their website, sent an email, we had an email exchange and then a brief phone call where I'm sure I cried and so good to do a little more crying with them again and laugh about it too in this episode of You're Going to Die the Podcast. Welcome, by the way. I'm your host and crying yogi, Ned Buskirk. After that connection with the venerable Robina Corton, they said yes to supporting our prison program and have ever since. All our work going into San Quentin every week now, our events back in San Quentin every month, our trips to Ohio to go into many prisons in Ohio, our work with the exoneree community, and our trips yearly to the Innocence Network Conference. The venerable Robina Corton has supported what we're up to. So what a treat then to get to finally have an in-depth conversation like the one you're about to listen to and to cry a bit because of all the suffering and to laugh a bit about that crying. <laughs> Robina gave me that to share stories intense stories about human beings living into and out of the prison system, what it means to suffer, the medicine of death, of mortality, Buddhism's first teaching. Oh, what medicine to get this conversation. So glad to share it with you. A Buddhist nun since the late 1970s, the Venerable Robina Corton has worked since then with the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition a worldwide network of Tibetan Buddhist activities of her teachers, Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa Rinpoche. She has served as editorial director of Wisdom Publications, editor of Mandala Magazine, executive director of Liberation Prison Project, and as a touring teacher of Buddhism. She was born in Melbourne, Australia, and educated by the Catholic nuns. She studied classical singing until the mid-1960s, when, ripe and ready for revolution, she became involved in the radical left in London and eventually feminism. Wanting something spiritual again, she met Tibetan lamas in 1976 in Australia and received ordination as a monastic 18 months later in Kathmandu. I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast, with the venerable Robina Corton. So, yeah, Ned, so then, okay, here I am, this Australian person, and I'm a Buddhist nun, and I've been based in the States really since 94, and, uh, um, and then part of this broader organisation where we have about 150, 160 activities around the world. And um, in, I think, yeah, 94, so I was then... I, 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 a job I took on was the editor of the magazine of our organization, which unfortunately has seemed to have stopped these days, um, a Tibetan Buddhist organization. It was called Mandala. So I started editing that magazine in 94, I think. So early 90, I think 95, I received a letter from a young uh, Mexican-American from Los Angeles who said he'd been in prison. So he was in prison in uh, Pelican Bay, Northern California, top security as we know, and um, he was in, you know, lockdown, permanent lockdown. He was in the shoe, the security housing unit, he said. He was 18 at the time. He told me he'd been, he wrote this letter. He's how, he said he'd been, re, he was in shoe, which is where you're in 23 hours a day, as you know, you have one 
hour, 45 minutes in, in a whatever, to a bit of a walk. But they've got a library. They have a library, and it seemed that quite. It seemed it must have been a quite a nice librarian because there were some Buddhist books, and he had a particular. There was a particular book by my teacher, Lama Yeshi, and he and he was very moved by the talk of compassion. And in that book, there was an, a note. It was a, a note about the magazine. So the letter came to me. Wrote to the he wrote to the magazine wanting books about Buddhism. So that's how we it started. So I sent him a book. And wrote a letter, and the and the rules were very easy going then in terms of sending books. And then he wrote back, and then his friend wrote, and because you know in Shu they shout across to each other and talk and share share information. So then his friend Francisco wrote, and before I know it, within a year, I think there were forty people. Just all word of mouth from California prisons writing. And uh, and it just kind of grew from there, you know. So every time they'd write, I mean, I was just this, you know, Buddhist nun getting kind of a couple hundred bucks in my pocket and my board and keep at the centre in, you know, in uh, San, around Santa Cruz. And I mean, I didn't have book money for books, but you'd read these letters and you couldn't say no. I mean, you know, you can't say no. The, the need was so clear, it was so human, you know. And like with everybody else, you can't just say, well, look at this website. I mean, there he is, twenty four hours, twenty three hours a day in in lockdown with a couple of books, you know, a couple of letters and. And a pencil. That's about it. Well, let me so let, let me ask you. Yeah, let yeah. me stop you there because I really, Rabina, I love. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna cry more than once. Ned, come on. It's okay. It's good for me. <laughs> All right, you cry. Um, I know that sentence because I have that feeling of I can't say no. Like it's a yes, absolutely, and 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 I mean that very recently, that feeling uh, in the last year since the pandemic in San Quentin, I think you probably, I'm sure know what that was like for that particular community, what happened in there because of the pandemic. And so when it was a chance to go back in, like we had been going in before the pandemic, it was a yes. And then there was a new program I got involved in and that got very difficult. Like things you, you, I'm sure you have vast experience in no can get with the prison system. And it came to a moment where it was like a yes or no. And it, and the sentence was what your sentence just was, which is like, how could I say there's no, no here. And I wonder, Robin, if you can expand on that though, is that different from anyone needing help coming to you to say, will you help no, me? That's a really good point. Um, well, I mean, I thought, I mean yeah. So yeah. Um, what's interesting I suppose one, you know, one so seeing in the framework here, I'm a Buddhist nun, which means, in case people don't know, well, in my case, I don't have husbands and wives and children and dogs and mortgages and all those intense responsibilities that most human beings have. So already, theoretically, I have more space to say yes. It's sort of my job in a sense, you know, mm-hmm. it's my job. Mm-hmm. There I was editing a magazine. And then all, already by that time, since in fact, since, 80, since 87, my teachers had asked me to start teaching Buddhism, which means really giving people advice, you know, supporting people in groups and indeed individually. So it's, in a sense, it's labeled my job to help human beings. So I'm not trying to sound too holy or anything. So this was just part of the job. There it was, this letter. But, you know, so more letters would come. And I'd look in my pocket. There was no money there. But we, I sort of, yeah, I think you have to cultivate this kind of attitude instead of saying, oh, look in the pocket. I haven't got the money. I can't do it. What you say is I will do it. And then you're forced to find the money. And that's a really interesting point. And I think in our lives, actually, in general, I think in our lives, we need to develop that courage, you know, instead of, oh my God, I can't do it. Oh no, I can't mm. do that. Oh no, it's too difficult. You say, yes, I do want to do it. And that opens the door to finding the means. So it's, it's a really skillful means to lead our life by, you know, it's mm-hmm. a really skillful approach to have that gives us more courage to do what we want. Many of us don't even are scared to do what we want because we worry about what the hubby thinks, the mother, this one and that, but we should say, yes, I want that. And then we'll find the means. So that's what we did. And it kind of grew organically from there. Someone turned up, I paid her $5 an hour out of my pocket to, to, send books, you know, I deal, I talked to the Buddhist publishers and we got good deals and so on and so forth. It grew from there basically. And then by the time I finished it, 2009, I gave the job to some, I was, the job was passed on to someone else. We, at that point, I think I had a nine full-time staff, $400,000 a year budget, just, you know, coming in from here and there. And basically the program, and I think it's the same now, but it's a lot smaller now, apparently I've heard the program is receiving letters and then responding to letters, giving them a person to talk to and sending books. That was the essence of it. That was because what I saw with people in prison, 
either you're in a place where, the, where there's nothing in your library and you're in you're in the middle of the bush or you're in a place where, you, you know, when you're on lockdown, you can't get anything. So somehow a book was the most precious gift to give people. I mean, it was that was really something as simple as that. You, know, you can't get anything else. You can't get a website. They have no money. So giving a book was the most precious thing to do. And then secondly, giving them someone to talk to, a letter, a person to write to, a mentor, you know, a, a friend, a pen pal, you know. So we had to kind of have a fairly strict guidelines, but it, it worked really powerfully. At some point we're getting 20,000 letters a month, you know. I mean, I yeah, so it was a very, that was a very precise program. 20,000 letters I, a month. I, 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 excuse, that. excuse me, I'm, I'm totally exaggerating. Still thousands. Too many zeros. (laughs) Um, So I think it's a lot. So it's still working. It's still there. I think, and they're trying to. They're trying. The person running it now is trying to build it up again. But it was so clear the need. You know, the need was human contact, and not even deep Buddhist knowledge. Just uh, the the people who continued to write to us. um, Okay, you wanted a girlfriend, you'd stop writing because that wasn't the right place to go to. You know, (laughs) but it was very clear that if you wanted to, if you kept writing, you wanted you wanted to look into your mind, you wanted to deal with your life and have a little means and some support in learning to become a better human being, which is the bottom line, really. So it grew from there, and it was for myself, of course, it was an extraordinary experience. Yeah. Oh my God. I can imagine. Um, it, it was, very, and, and I'd visit quite a few places. I'd visit many. I've visited many states, many prisons in America, including people on death row. Um, yeah, like that. And I mean, of course, what I noticed was that the vast majority of the population in prison are poor, working class. You know, all these things: black, Latino, the poor, the poor people. I mean, you know, I don't think I've ever rich. I don't think I've ever met a rich person on death row. Mm-hmm. I mean, they might. Some, but they're probably the psychopaths, you know. It won't be a regular rich person who's got enough money to, I mean, I think, not being too sarcastic, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. You know. So it was very, very beneficial for my own self, very beneficial and a very easy and, you know, a very marvelous way to be out of benefit to people, to help people look into their minds. Yeah. Um, a couple questions. The letter writing, is it like the connecting feels important? And so yeah. then not like a, I'm going to send back this uh, preachy response to try to get you to learn from what you've shared. Uh, can you give me an example of, though, how that maybe responding would go from from these letters? Well, yeah, like- I mean, you'd have to use your comments. You have to use your wits about you. If a, there's a person like, you know, I can think of one guy um you know, in uh, with uh, you know in California, when the laws, I think they're changing a bit now. Yeah, a guy is in his fifties, maybe forties, fifties at that point. This is twenty-five years ago when I first met. I mean, I was t- yeah, twenty-five years ago when I first met this one, Henry. He uh, he clearly was in te- super intelligent. He was in lockdown, permanent lockdown in shoe, and he was really in se- serious meditator from his experiences. You could see it, and he really wanted to seriously study. So then you'd talk to him in that particular way. You'd send particular books. You'd give him courses to study. You'd have serious conversations about the meaning of this and that. But somebody else just wanted a friend, you know, wanted a, to read a little book and maybe – and so you, you use your sense and respond accordingly. Could be a long letter, could be a short letter, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing all that. Um, I wonder if I could piggyback on something you said. You, you um, said it was very beneficial for you to be connected yeah. to this community. And I wonder, again, if you can expand on that and and in particular maybe answer the question, what from the that, those connections, what from those conversations, what, what from those visits in prison – especially from the Buddhist perspective, but maybe also equally interested in just personally, what is, what were those relationships showing you in general about maybe our country, our culture, our, you know, our just humanity in general that you wouldn't maybe get as potently from uh, other ways of being in service? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Ned. The first thing I really realize is of course, whether I go to Russia, whether I go to, you know, meet a person on death row in Kentucky we are literally all the same. And it's not meant to be a cliche. We are literally all the same. And I mean, especially when I see extreme examples, where there's a mega rich person living in, you know, a fancy house with some over here and a person on death row in Kentucky. If I, you know, using the Buddhist approach, which, you know, is a, one way of putting it is a deep, it gives you, a, it, it enables you to get a deep understanding of your own mind so you can unpack and unravel it and start to be in charge of it. So from that perspective, we are all identical. That You can't even pretend it's, it's not anything else. It's, we are all identical. We all want to be happy. We all don't want to suffer. We all have low self-esteem. You know, we all want more than we've got. We never, you know, we all get angry and jealous and depressed. We want to be blah, 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 blah. So it's just that the, the key point, of course, of people in prison is, um, this powerful 
thing, the, the component, that they don't have a choice. They can't change. I mean, one thing we have, even if we're, even if we're, I mean, you almost argue, even if you're homeless, you can sort of move down to the next block, you know, and I'm not trying to belittle that. But somehow the, we, um, the, the thing about being in a prison, you, there's a saying in Buddhism, if you can change something, meaning the outside world, then please change it. But what if you can't? So with prisons, they only have the second choice. They don't have the choice to change anything. So that's kind of powerful. And what I really began to, began to notice, because when even in our outside world, where we seem to have absolutely any choice we like to go from here to wherever you want, somehow the irony is we don't believe we have choices. We are so overwhelmed by our inner prison, as Lama Zopa would put it, you know, the inner prison of feeling I have, oh, you know, you'd come to me and say, oh, my job's so lousy with me and I hate my job. And then I'd say, well, you know, you could change. No, 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 not possible. I can't possibly do that. I'll never get another job. And then you, well, you could change your mind and start liking the job. No, no, I can't do that. You know, so we're paralyzed by both. At least people in prison have the luck, have the powerful intelligence, the, the emotional intelligence to realize they only have one choice. You go crazy or you change your mind. Oh, my gosh. So for yeah. me, it's very, really, the, that, and that, if you look at the Buddhist approach, the essence of really the Buddha's findings about reality, uh, that the, what goes on in our mind is the most powerful thing, and we have, and we do have the power to change the way we see things, you know, and that's really the essence of it. And that's why I always like to use this example of one of my, one woman in prison, her name's Sunny, Sunny Jacobs. She wrote a memoir. In the 70s, she, I always quote this woman, and I now know her. She's old, she's living in Ireland, and she's whatever. I mean, old, yeah, 80s or something. But she she was in seven, seven, mid-70s hitching with a husband, something like this, and uh, picked up by two guys, and the guys got stopped by the police, and then she they got and then they killed the police and blamed the hippies. So, you know, um, Sonny and her husband on death row, she was in a cell on her own for many years. I mean, so uh, it's so bar barbaric, oh, you know. Yeah. So, utterly, so you can imagine the scenario, utterly innocent. And then eventually, Lucy had, she had her, her two children were given to her parents and she was so happy about that. But then the parents died in a car accident, so she lost her kids to the state. Every nightmare would happen, you know. And then the husband eventually got executed and she was at the execution and his head burst into flames. Mm. It's like kind of a, a joke, you know. Mm. Do you understand? So one nightmare after another, and what I find about this woman, and the more I've known her for years now, is that astonishes me, which is why she's such a powerful example. She's not Buddhist. She's not, has no spiritual path. She's got this extraordinary emotional intelligence. She said, at some point I finally realized I couldn't change anything, but they couldn't take my mind from me. And this is what's so incredible. So, so I'd say, I have to say mature, sophist I mean profoundly mature in her understanding she said, I realized that I could, t I had to take responsibility for my own thoughts. This is beyond belief. There you are in a cell on your own, 24 hours a day with a Bible. Your kids have been put into the state. Your hubby's had his brains fried. Mm. You're totally innocent. 17 years it took her to get her freedom. Mm. But she doesn't lose the plot. She becomes, I mean, she worked intensively. She said, I'd give myself five minutes to be raging angry and then I would stop. So she literally worked on her mind. She learned yoga in the cell on her own. I mean, it's absolutely, for me, it's the most astonishing example. Mm -hmm. And why she's a good example is because she's not a Buddhist. She's not anything. She's just got this intelligence. Mm -hmm. And that's the essence of any of the people I know in prison who have taken on the Buddha's teachings. That they've accomplished that. Mm hmm this ability to learn to be happy in these garbage dumps, you know, where you're treated, you're the worst, you're the worst, you know, I mean, even, I think you're even lower than homeless people in terms of value on this planet, you know. So my friend Mitchell on death row in Kentucky, this wonderful, this white, white guy, Southern white boy, you know, he's been there since the eighties. He's getting close to his death date. I'm ready for that electric jolt. He says he's up at five in the morning doing his practice in his red jumpsuit. He's, he's the, he's the friend of all the, the crazy dudes on death row. He's like their friend takes care of them. He makes little things, but he's a happy man, a genuinely happy human being, content with his, mm. you know, garbage dump life. So that for me is pretty powerful. Oh my goodness. My I mean, yeah. I both want to acknowledge you know the path most clearly often because of your work maybe, but also because you're looking from that perspective as Buddhism. Sonny didn't have that spiritual path and still got that that's right. That's yeah. what's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And many people with a spiritual path still can't do it. It's really oh, demanding. Right, 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 right. An extraordinary level. And if you think about it, not just, it's this extraordinary level of intelligence. It's the, the ability for her to have the logic that, that made her realize she didn't have to go crazy.
That's incredible because usually we're overwhelmed with our righteousness to go crazy or we really don't believe we can change our mind. Yeah. Or how? what do you mean I should change my mind? They're the ones who should change. So it's really quite extraordinary. Yes. And she's just humble. She's unassuming and humble about it. And if you meet her, I mean, I've met so many people who've come out of prison. And, of course, it's emotionally stunting in prison, is it? you know, whatever the word is, yeah. But she somehow, she's like, she's, you, you never know. She had this years of nightmare. Mm-hmm. She's this little old lady. She's got no, tra- she's got no trauma. She's got no baggage because she's dealt with it, you know. She's quite, ext- I mean, me, a most unusual experience. Uh, oh, my goodness, example. yeah. So, so and extraordinary. And that's been always the way I've been trying to help it, give people these tools, you know, it's mm-hmm. the job I'm trying to do. Yeah. So it's a t- this is a particular, really specific approach to the Buddhist practice, you know, to try and learn to know we've got the power to change our minds. Well, I'd be like, know. thank you for all that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obvious. Uh, I have trajectory. I'm feeling suddenly um, the, the next question might take us out of that context. It, sure. And and my bridge for that is something I say a lot to the guys inside San Quentin. And I've said, oh. it's a lot of the community I've actually worked with the exonerees, you know, the, the community. That's what Tony does now. She works with exonerees because that was the key thing for her. What I say to that community is, you know how many people I meet outside prison that are incarcerated, <laughs> like in their mentality, in their spiritual being, how unalive they are all day long. And then I go in and I meet this community every week and how mind-blowingly, and that does not mean they are not struggling, they are not suffering, they are not grief-stricken, but what you're talking about and the circles I am just so privileged to be able to be a part of when I go inside are the community that have been doing the decades of what you're describing. And so I do want to kind of bridge that because I think that's a bit of what you're talking about. It, It is the obvious, like we are in prisons because we've got ourselves confined to, I'm not going to make those changes. I can't make those changes. I don't want to make those change, changes. And, and I think maybe it's partly because we have so many ways of, of denying. We have so many options that people that are incarcerated do not. To numb out, to like disassociate. Anyway, I'm wondering if you can kind of launch from there. There's nothing, there's nothing more to say. I mean, that really is the key to it. I mean, I see that just continuously. We are completely paralyzed. We don't... We don't, yeah. I mean, in other words, in, in general, you can say in any situation in your life, you've got precisely two options. Leave it, change it, or change your mind. And many, and we, but we act, I mean, yeah, because we're overwhelmed. But I suppose the thing that's really important, and that's what I find helpful about Buddhist psychology, if you really unpack it, if you really go into it more deeply, it gives us the, the understanding of why it's so difficult. So let's just talk about that for a second, shall we? This is psychologically. So the Buddhist analysis is very clear, you know. Um, Buddha talks about the three poisons, which sounds kind of cute, but these three toxic emotions that are kind of fundamental in all of us. And they're sort of deceptively simple, this explanation, because we use these fancy, I always joke, we, we, as soon as it becomes a disease, we give it a letter, we give it a Greek name, you know. It's ridiculous. Just a schizophrenic and psychological yeah. and psychopath. Well, here it's we're talking about attachment. It's I mean, here two, so these two central main ones, and this seems so simplistic, attachment and anger. It just sounds like a joke. You don't go, I mean, we don't call anger a mental illness, but if it's not a mental illness, I don't know what it is. But if we can analyze our minds, and the way the Buddhists would say is that we're all driven by this primordial kind of like um, attachment. And it's really like an emotional hunger and it's deep in our bones and we're born with it. And it's basically, it's first, the first level of it is dissatisfaction. I've never got enough. And I, and I, even when it's really serious, I am not enough. This painful dissatisfaction. So if you're dissatisfied, you then you have to hanker after something and that's all the objects of the senses and so on and so forth. But the thing that's the most, um, and then the thing is when this attachment, which is dr- driving us millisecond by millisecond, doesn't get what it wants because there's this junkie that only wants the nice things, which is what I want, the millisecond it doesn't get what it wants, that's so-called anger. But not everybody's called angry, but guess what? We've got these milder levels of it, irritated, upset, frustrated, annoyed, or when it builds up internally, depression and despair, you know. These are all variations of thwarted attachment. So in a sense we go between attachment and aversion. So there's these, you know, there you are in your job and you're dissatisfied. So then you get angry. So then you've got these two options. You either leave it, go get another job, or 
you change your mind and decide, okay, there isn't worthwhile, I'll make the most of this job, and that's the real choice we can have. And it's fine to leave. It's fine to leave your husband if he's going to be punching in the nose. It's fine to leave, but we don't – We but, so we have to see what it is about this attachment, and this is what I'm getting to. It's a more subtle level that prevents us from making those choices. It makes it so fearful. And this is the attachment. They call it in Buddhism attachment to reputation, which sounds so silly, but it's attachment to being seen as a good girl, attachment to being loved, attachment to being – validated, attachment to approval. So because we're driven by the fear all our lives to do what mummy said, what daddy said, what God said, what he said, what she said, we're terrified to actually make our own choices because we say, oh, I can't do that, you know, but we're scared of being criticised basically. So we say paralysed and then we blame everybody else. But it's attachment, this fear, and that's where guilt is, guilt, oh, I shouldn't do that because somebody said I shouldn't do it. It's all programmed. So we become paralyzed. No, I can't leave my job. Oh, I couldn't do that. Oh, no, I can't leave my husband. That's not true. I'll get criticized. But it's all, it's unspoken. It's deeply instinctive in us. And if we can have the courage, yeah, to look into our minds and know we have the, I mean, anyway, blah, blah. But I think that's a very powerful way we all we all really do something. This need to be seen mm-hmm. and, to, and to behave or to be a good girl because so, you don't want to upset the apple cart. Mm-hmm. And that become, when we become paralyzed, mm-hmm. you know, we can't make any decisions. We can't make any choices. Well, I, Just I, I feel this connects and it might, this might be heavy handed. So you'd be like, hold up. We have a little more to go through to get to this. But I'm thinking of this guy that you talked about that's on death row who said, I'm ready for that shock. And I, I think the healing or the, what, what do you call it? Enlightenment. I, I mean, what do you, what are the words that we're talking about when we talk about Sonny or we talk about this guy? Well, I mean, the Buddhism got a name, but it can be very, it can be very arcane. It can also start to sound religious, but it's just, I think it's just really incredible. The, yeah, you the, said this. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, to learning to know, to know your own mind, to know what you're thinking and feeling, and then to unpack and unravel and go to ever deeper levels yeah. and to get to the clarity mm-hmm. and then to be able to make these brave choices and to observe how we are. We do have the power to have control over our thoughts and feelings, yeah. and we have you know, in other words, and this is this is really the method of becoming. Our mothers would tell us becoming your own person. So we're usually driven by fear to make any decisions and choices because we never look inside. We're always looking only outside and trying to follow all the, the, the you know the all the clues from the outside. So we've got to start looking inside. And it's not mystical, is it? It's very down to earth. But to know your own mind and have and own the rubbish that's there because that causes you pain. And instead of feeling guilty about it, no, that's limiting you. And then to know that we can change that our minds are not, our views, our feelings, our thoughts, our emotions are not set in stone. You don't need me to list all the things you can do to support what we're up to in the world, do you? You know how to support a 501c3 nonprofit. You know how to support a podcast. You don't need me to list it every friggin' episode. So I'm not gonna. In fact, instead, I'm just gonna acknowledge something that I feel I need more acknowledgement with in my life. Something accented by the fact that we could die at any moment. And that is the enoughness of you right where you are the whole complete presence of you listening here with us, spending any of your living moments, your living breaths, your limited breaths here on earth, here and now with us. Thank you for doing that. It is enough. We are so glad you're here alive and listening to You're Going to Die, the podcast.
So gradually in this process, you know, getting to prison in the mid-80s, going through it all, you know, then wanting a spiritual path, finding particularly like Buddhism. I mean, we met in the mid-90s and then just practicing every day and practicing and practicing and reading and thinking about it. And, of course, because in Buddhism, this is the just the background, that the Buddhist view, you know, especially the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of the, the monastic university system spends masses of time studying all the philosophy. It's not just meditating, studying all the philosophy quite deeply. And so, of course, the, the, the fundamental point in Buddhism, the key point that's central to the whole Buddhist approach, the whole Buddhist worldview really, is that consciousness or mind, they use these words synonymously, there are billions of, they call it the term they use is sentient being. So the, ter- the term in Tibetan is very nice, is mind possessor. So there are trillions of mind possessors, not just humans. And the Buddha's view is that all those minds are like continuities of mental moments, that we don't come from a creator, we don't come from mummy, we don't come... Our, our mind is not given to us, our consciousness, our being is not given to us by our parents. We get their, our body from them and we don't start from nothing. So our consciousness goes back and back and then it moves forward, forward. So there's a kind of a, there's a framework in which to see all this for the Buddhists. So given one of the, one of the things that the essential Buddhist point is we've all got this marvellous potential to be happy and clear and wise and compassionate and be of benefit to others, you know, that's our potential. So then what drives you to want to do that work first is your own wish to be happy because you're sick of the bloody suffering and then you're driven by the wish to see others because you realize you're in the same boat and so because your conscious will continue whether you like it or not you might as well kind of prepare for the future as well it's just practical it's practical it's not moralistic or religious you know it's not punishment and reward there's no concept like that in buddhism because there's no punisher and there's no rewarder so the whole idea of continuity of mind and and being ready for death which means also being ready being, being ready for death meaning living your life in the frame of the reality of impermanence and death because it's fact and we don't know when it's going to come we all know that and then recognizing the fear we have of dying because we don't want to be someone we don't want to not be me it's kind of primordial but also being ready for that event so because he can anticipate what the event is like because it's like it's so bloody medieval because he was sentenced in the 80s he has to be even though it's no longer used he has to be put into the electric chair He's got to be electrified, you know. So he's been thinking about that. And one of the meetings I had recently with him, well, a couple of years ago, he was thinking about how will I be, Rabina, while I'm standing in front of this guy with three inches between our faces while he puts, sets me up ready to kill me, you know. Should I be thinking of him? Should I be looking at him? I said, well, you know, it's fine to have compassion in your heart, but focus on your own practice. Keep yourself focused. Don't let him do his job. Don't interfere, you know. So, I mean, that's kind of intense. Oh, my gosh, Rabina. Because he can, he doesn't know when it's going to happen. It could be very soon. It's getting to the end. Let him do his job. Let him do oh his job. Just relax. Mm. And stay focused mm. on the practices you've been doing mm-hmm. and keep your mind steady. So when they're going to, because you know that's kind of intense. So that's everyone has to do. So there's a whole there's a book I edited of one of my teachers. It's called How to Face Death Without Fear, which is really a handbook for Buddhism, all the different practices you could do in order to, for, your, for your loved ones, but clearly for yourself as well, to prepare you both to live your life in a better way so that you're ready for death and then at the time of death, because it's very laid out, very precisely, technically described the process of this deconstruction that occurs from the great yogi's experiences. So you learn to want to face that time with a happy mind, not resisting, not fearful, for your sake but also for you, for the sake of everybody else around you. So it's not just to grieve as a person looking on the outside, and it's not just to make it look nice, but it's to really it's to help that person, you know, help that person go through the process with a happy, content mind so that they can, and then you leave them in peace for a couple of days so their mind can continue to another rebirth. So there's another, that's the, the Buddhist approach. Yes. Know? But I find also working with people in relation to death, and I do a lot of courses using this book of Lama's Opus because I edited it, that I find I meet different people all over the world and so moves me now that so more, I mean, in Australia, for example, um, I went to, uh, I was invited to a conference, uh, you know, just like a, I forget, it was just ordinary people, doctors and nurses, who and young doctors and nurses who are electing to work among the dying, which I think is so moving, so amazing, you know. And also there's a very moving experience of, um, of um, one hospital, children's hospital, this lovely doctor, kind dear doctor, who tried to make it all more human because it's so it's so appalling for people to face the fact of babies dying. It's too painful for us. So the fear and grief that's involved in that. And I remember he was so, so, such a good man. And this conference, I remember having the parents talk and the doctors talk, and, he, and, he, and they talked about how he decided to um, – uh, design the morgue like a like a nursery and had it open 
And so the little brothers and sisters, come and meet my dead brother, you know, sort of tried to demystify death. Mm. This is for the, for the people who stay. Mm-hmm. So there's two things in Buddhism, to help the person die for their benefit, but also for one's own sake, to face the reality. As they say, there's one of the prayers we do, one kind of poetic. The, the last line is, and this will happen to me. So the biggest, so, the, so that's one thing I have got to from working with the death and dying or working with people in prison on death row and people dying is that um, this is going to happen to me. So use it as a wake-up call, not just, phew, it's not me. We always think everybody else dies, yeah. you know, but yeah. to wake up call. And that only make your life more valuable because you know you can't, you don't waste your life. That's, that's right. the attitude. Yeah. Thank you, Romina. Uh, this is wonderful. Um, I wonder, the very obvious option is to say, well, from the Buddhist work you've done, how many years you've been in this practice, talk about death meditation or some of the Buddhist practices a little more that kind of, uh, and, and I wouldn't say there could be some room for that, but I'm, I'm wondering if your personal journey into this spiritual practice, into this walk, can you connect it to loss and grief? Can you connect it to mortality? Can you connect it to your own fear of dying? Was there a time when you were younger where you suffered some kind of loss that led to this path? And and also great if you're like, no, that's not how it went. I kind of want to know how it went, but I'm just wondering if, if there's a personal journey here that does connect in a way that, go ahead. No, Nancy, the thing is, it's it's absolutely central to the entire to if especially the Tibetan Buddhist. I'm, I'm not trying to say others that don't because Buddhist teachings are Buddhist teachings, but it's a very it's a central component in the Tibetan Buddhist way of presenting the path to enlightenment. One of the first practices you learn is to recognize the reality of impermanence and death. So that and why? Because then once you realize life is, then you realize life is precious and it could end at any moment, and that gives you the energy to even want to practice. So it's it's used as a motivator. So one of the first things for Tibetan Buddhists. Is just a, this joke, death and impermanence. We're all going to die. It's, it's totally confronted from day one. It's not some kind of incidental thing. And I'm not even, I mean, this is very much the Tibetan Buddhist approach. Yeah, so that clear. makes so sense. It's, it's I figure. So fundamental. Because also we can see death is just a more dramatic example of impermanence. And we don't even like anything changing. We can't, I mean, this is something so powerful. Us, I think we suffer so much because we live in denial of change. And this is, brings us to attachment. I always use the example and it's always, it's, it's, I quote an example of reading an interview with Nicole Kidman. I'm not trying to be mean about her. I love this woman, the Australian actor. In Vanity Fair, years ago, it was so powerful an example. She, she was, when she was with Tom Cruise, and at the end she said, we will be together until we are 80. So the fact is, we, if you know, if you read papers and know things, she wasn't with him until yeah, she was 80, yeah, you know. Yeah. Things happen. And the point is also she then said the next sentence, I remember it vividly, she said, and if we won't be, I'll be devastated, which I thought was very wise. So, in re- so then, this is what I'm getting at: is this? We all know things change. We all know marriages don't last. We all know people die unexpectedly. We all know cups break. We all know impermanence is the reality of life. We can't, we can't stand it. And my feeling is, it's because of this attachment. So, if you're in love with somebody and everything's working perfectly, their life was perfect, the kids, the life, it was like blissful, and it's marvelous to be happy. How fantastic to be happy! But because you could put it this way, attachment's getting what it wants. It is unbearable to even consider the possibility that it'll change. So we put this fantasy onto it that makes it permanent. We will be together until we are 80. I will not die today. I'm a happy living person. It's like the thought that you could die today is the biggest joke of all. And 80 is inconceivable. That's why it's a fantasy. It's like, I don't know 80. I'll say that because it doesn't even exist. Yeah. I, I mean, but I mean, we lie to ourselves because yeah. we can't stand the thought of change. Mm-hmm. But then the tragedy is when the good thing changes into the bad thing, now you've collapsed into despair and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel and now you kill yourself. And there, so they're the, the downsides of this simp- of grasping th- things as permanent yeah. when in reality the, di- the natural law of reality is that things are changing moment by moment and we happen not to know when. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's that's all death is an example of that. That's all. Well, wait, did you, were you born into Buddhism or did you have the moment where you needed to learn that first major lesson of Buddhism, death oh, and impermanence? Well, I was a, well, I'm a Catholic in Australia. Okay. So, so, so there was also you know, a lot I mean, of death and dying. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, Catholic, you know, I was, and I, I mean, I was in, but I was in love with God from the second I went to mass. I knew it was my job. I announced, you know, mm-hmm. and they all laughed. You, you, wait, wait, hold on. Wait, you, you, you go yeah. to mass. I was a little girl. I loved. I was in love with God. You yelled it out at mass. You said, "This is my job to be a priest." 
But they said, no, you can't be a priest. You're a girl. I remember thinking, well, I've got to be a nun. All right. Uh, so then I was, but also I was kind of naughty and rebellious as well, you know. So on 12, I was 12 and I was on my knees begging my mother to let me be a nun like this kind of, these, you know, the St. Therese of Lisieux, this little kind of holy saint. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I was wicked and naughty. And then by the time no. I was 19, I gave up. I decided, hello, boys, goodbye, God. And then I went to England and in the late 60s, I'm kind of raging hippie and then radical lefty and then black politics and then feminist politics and then I want something spiritual again. And so at the age of 30, I met these Tibetan lamas. Wow. Oh, my gosh. What a nutshell. Uh, I mean, I want to know all the details, but okay, great. That's a good snapshot. And So, yeah, I didn't ever think about No, of course not. So the, yeah, I mean, I, I knew it automatically. I mean, grandmothers die and babies die and your dogs die. Those are the early change. versions of your loss. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and by by the time you suffered, maybe the more significant losses of your parents or or any loved ones. And I was see what's interesting is I know I don't maybe I know my mummy died, my daddy died, yeah, all they died. My late older sister just died, but I think it was um I didn't I've never had much particular kind of yeah attachment to want to have babies and wives and husbands. I mean I tried to have have sex drugs and. I always joke, I'm not rock and roll, jazz, sex drugs and jazz. Sex drugs and jazz. And I kind of went through it. I didn't. I knew it wasn't there for me, and I tried this and I tried that, and then it just seems to fit for me to be a Buddhist nun mm. and have my own freedom in my own life. And so, yeah, people die. I don't tend to experience so much grief, though. Somehow no? in Buddhism. Yeah, because I feel like I'm no. – go ahead. I'm, no. Yeah, I'm crying over you here I, a couple times, and I feel like I you're like – okay, that's enough, or it's okay, stop it, or you're worried about me? Like, what do you, how do you react to me crying? crying. What? Wait, did you say it's hilarious? I know it's hilarious. You cry all the time. But what is that? What is that to you? You just got a a big fat heart, I suppose. (laughs) That's right, that's right. I mean, I can see it too. There's a nice analogy in Buddhism that a bird needs two wings, wisdom and compassion. And so the compassion is the big heart, but the wisdom wing is the work you do on yourself, you know, put yourself together and give up the attachment and fears and drama and anger and depression and jealousy so you become more clear and content, then you can do the wisdom wing really, the compassion wing really well. Mm. So we all got different kinds of compassion. Sure. Uh, thank mean, you. Know. What What was yeah. it like when your mommy died and your... Oh, I mean, well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, my father died when I was 1969. I mean, I was in England and I was... I remember feeling, I don't know, I don't know what to say. It was never that much grief. I was sad. But, and then my older sister died. What I was mainly, actually, this is an interesting question. Well, now taking the Buddhist view, when my older sister died, which was six months ago, six, nine months ago, mm-hmm. um, I was going to Australia anyway. And, the, and, the, and the, the day before, my sister called, I knew there was a problem. It was two in the morning. Janet, our beloved older sister, there were seven of us, she'd fallen down the stairs to help her senile husband who'd fallen. And she fell on her head, you know, so she was brain dead. And I kept, and all I cared was to keep her alive so I could, you know, get to Australia and get the Dalai Lama to say prayers, get the, my lamas to say prayers to help her mind and to get to Australia to see her and say prayers in her ear. So my sister said, she's dead, Romina, she's dead. I said, I know, but please can you keep her the, you know, the yep. machine on. So my main concern was to do those things because that's my view these days of the Buddhist view of consciousness not being, you know, her still being there for the three days before she stopped breathing. Right. So I was happy. I was mainly concerned about doing some practices for her, mm-hmm. for her sake, mm-hmm. even though she was, you understand, because I had these views. Yes. So, so that was the main one. I was happy to get there to do that for her sake. Yes. I was happy. Do you think you that, do you think, I do understand. And, you yeah. know, I, 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 forgive me for this and you can just say, nope, yeah. stop it. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, the part of me sometimes feels like with religion and spiritual practice, we, it, it ends up being a version of sidestepping us getting a chance to really grieve. And so I wonder in your practice and your, your work in the world, in the Buddhist context, is there, is there any chance that part of what is, this is, is a, a displacement of, and also deep belief. Like I'm not, I'm not, uh, not acknowledging that it's your belief and that it's true to you, but is it not make room for the grief? And I would say this a lot in my time in, in the church, that the heaven as a, as, as where we'll go somehow undermines the power of mortality and impermanence and death and dying. Cause then we say, well, we don't, we're just going to be together, you know, in that next room, I guess. And so I'm wondering for you, if, if that's part of it, I don't know, how do you answer that? But 
Is that part of it? Like, do you feel like, is there, you're like, I don't really relate to grief. I'm not, I don't feel no, that way. I, I, I don't want to sound like cold and indifferent, but I don't, I don't have, I have never experienced much grief. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like I'm too practical or something. It's the only word I can use, not cold hearted. No. I mean, I, I try to be compassionate and help way. people in my life, but I have a different way and different way of seeing things. I don't have that kind of, um, no, I really, since my mother, my father, my sister, my grandmother, my very close spiritual teachers, um, I don't know what to say. Yeah. What can I say? Now? I mean, that's good. That's good. When have you deeply cried and why? I'm trying to remember. I think when, I mean, I think very much, you see, grief and loss also, you deal with that as you know your mind. You learn to let go of the old habits. You learn to let go of the attachment and the fears mm-hmm. and the anger. That's a very grief-stricken process. So that is when I was really working hard on my mind. I'd be just on the floor in, in on the floor in fetal position. So really that's part, that is what it is in a sense. Not to, I've never, I, don't have, I haven't put it in those words, but when you're really working, this is how I feel, really learning to unpack and unravel my own mind and see my own garbage and my own fears and my own jealousy and depression and all the loss and all that, that's when it all came out. You know, mm-hmm. that's when I would, and I'd say I'd be in fetal position mm-hmm. going through that process. And this is like what and part of your works. life where that would be a common, you know, where that would ever happen, like a collapse. What, what part well, of no, it? It's not my past. I don't think it would happen mm-hmm. now. Yeah, I think no, I'd, I believe that. Yeah. There's stages and stages of your development. The Buddhist approach is there's levels of subtlety of our mind that we don't even begin to even contemplate in the modern psychology. We've got far more work to do deep inside, you know, mm-hmm. that we're capable of. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that for me, so the part of my, my being a Buddhist is to help me become more practical, more dealing with reality, not living in a fantasy world, not going up and down like a yo-yo, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, becoming more stable emotionally, more fulfilled, more content, therefore more compassionate. Mm-hmm. So the Buddhist view is, to have compassion doesn't mean you have to you have to weep and cry. I mean, as you progress in the Buddhist view, you get these incredible levels of compassion where you only think of others, but you don't suffer yourself at all. And that's not really – I mean, my teacher recently, Lama Zopa, passed away, and he's said to be one of these highly realized beings. I don't even say that. I don't know. <laughs> but he, he had he – only you can see it. He only ever actually thought of others. I mean, for almost – in our culture, we tend to think that's almost like mental illness. The, even when he had a stroke, there was no thought of – he was only trying to – it was just like it was funny. He was laughing. He never talked about his sickness. He only ever used it as part of his path. He only ever thought of others. And it sounds weird because it – we almost because we factor in fears and grief and attachment and depression as a part of a normal human being. But the Buddhist approach is we can go even beyond that and become just super powerfully wise and super powerfully compassionate. You can have tears of compassion, but that's not labeled suffering. Yes. It's when it's depression and anger and hopelessness. That's what suffering mm. is. You can get rid of you can go beyond that. Yeah. And I and I don't mean to compare you two, but it's like it's almost to me like what you just described about what's what's your teacher? Lama Zopa. They or the superpower, whatever the words are, right? But that there's not this enormously developed in compassion, yeah, and rid of rid of ego and full of compassion and benefit to others, and also free freed then probably from a lot. You said like it's not about my suffering, my compassion, and any tears might come from looking around me and seeing other people in need and seeing other people hurt and heartbroken. Yeah, that plenty of you'd have plenty yeah, of that. right endless. You know, <laughs> But, but the thing is, that with when you've lessened the Buddhist approach, when you've lessened your own fears and and feeling of separateness and hopelessness, you become more stable, yep. which looks like you're less emotional, but you're far more compassionate yeah, and you're yeah. more capable of being a benefit to others. Mm-hmm. If you just keep, you know, I'm not saying you weeping into, you know, I mean, so they talk about well, you know, one there's one yogi up in the mountains where every time he um, thought of thought of sentient beings, he burst into tears. I mean, you know, sounds like yeah. you. So people have tears. I just, I don't have tears. That's I mean, yeah. Right. Right. So about me. Yeah. And yeah. I know, I know this is risking me thinking like, what's wrong with you, Robina? Admit it. You know, I'm not trying to do that. I'm, I'm really trying to kind of explore well, yeah. different kinds of people, yes. different kinds. Of Absolutely. People. Um, but, but he, he even, they, all call this, they even called this yogi always crying. <laughs> he was always crying. Every time he thought about the suffering, he he's your patron saint. Okay. <laughs> That's incredible. That's great. Uh, you said this, you said, see, people would look at your teacher and think like, it's kind of be some kind of mental health issue, you know? And that's interesting, right? Cause I think people come to me in our grief spaces, let's say. And I think the mental health issue is their, their version of a mental health issue is the not crying. I understand this. And so do you have thoughts on that? Cause I, I, it's like, 
What do you say to someone who comes? Does that make sense? I don't even know what that question is. It's like, there's a person that comes into uh, say the conversation like we're having and their inclination is resistance to the point of not grieving like they need it. How do you speak to from your practice in life? And maybe you're like, I don't know, I'm just not like that. So I don't have anything to say. I think you know your own mind well enough. I mean, of course we can suppress, we live in suppression because, you know, because we haven't dealt with all the past traumas. And some people are very skillful at living in denial of the past traumas. In a sense, we need to, to survive. So, but there's another approach, which is why for me, when I was talking, when you start to deal with yourself and you unpack it all, you start, you, you know, you're on the floor in vital position because you're dealing with it. Then you, but then you can right. go through it. You're and right. You're it. right. But if we've not, I think we've not. I think we've got masses of stuff to deal with because we we don't know how to deal with all the traumas of daily life. We have no idea how to do it. So we put we either go crazy or we we bury it. You know, and then it comes up later. That's right. So we have to learn to deal with it in one way or another. Yeah, you said, you Sunny. Know, Sunny, just way. have five minutes of anger. You know, make the room. Yeah, she worked phenomenally hard at knowing she had the power to move forward, you know. So, I mean, it's tremendous. Gratitude to Rabina Corton for showing up on the show here and for supporting what we do, our 501c3 nonprofit, the prison program. We could not do what we do without that kind of support. If you want to connect to Rabina, go to rabinacorton.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. Also, follow them on Instagram. They post regular reels with very powerful, as you can imagine, after listening to this conversation, very potent reels on Instagram and all the ways to connect to them. You can find through their website, ton of content on their website. Thank you, Robina, so much. So grateful for this talk, for the tears, the laughter, the wisdom, the stories. So good. Thank you so much. And also all of you, a reminder, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, so your support, sharing the podcast, rating and reviewing the shows. Also, go to our website, yg2d.com. You can find out more by connecting to us through the website in all the ways and on social media in all the ways, what we're up to, especially with our prison program. But I'm saying all this to accent. We need your support. We're, we're doing all these things, and we are grateful to do them. But we'd love to keep doing it and do more and more and more than ever and connect to more and more people. So your support is invaluable. Thank you for listening, but also connect up to the website and find out other ways you can support what we're up to. We so appreciate you. Speaking of appreciating people, Nick Jana, how are you? Happy 4th of July. Mm. <laughs> mm. Sorry, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, really? I just thought of... I'm glad I'm spending my 4th of July doing this kind of thing, though. That's what I want to say about the 4th of July. Yeah. Like, to be working on a podcast like this and sharing a conversation, like getting an episode ready that holds a conversation like the one I've shared with Robina here, um, it feels like a really good way to spend the 4th. I don't think that you should be holding sparklers right now, though. No, no, but I just was excited to see you. Yeah. Sorry. I think you should I'll put, put them down. <laughs> well, don't put them. Got it. By the oily oh, rags. Geez. Oh, on fire. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. I didn't. There's that theater training. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized a way to remember whether it's 501c3 or 5013c, which I can never remember. Great, good. I'm so glad. What what did you what did you figure out? C3PO. Oh, nice. 501c3PO. Yeah, just think of that. <laughs> I have no problem remembering the order. Really? Oh. But I love your your recent mid-show promo moment. I just <laughs> I get to that and I'm just like, I have no idea. 
Yeah, I've just written it and said it so many times. Um, but I appreciated your nonchalant way of getting people to support our 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 programs by not knowing how to say it. It actually, I think it might have caught people's attention by saying it wrong. I once I once uh, applied for a temp agency that, uh, unbeknownst to me, I had already worked for. I just I used to work for a bunch of temp agencies, and they would change yeah, names, and like years would go past, and like they're unremarkable names and whatever. So I was like going through the application process, and I was about to be approved. And then they're like, Oh, wait a minute. You've worked for us before. Wait, there's a note on here that says don't hire. (laughs) Wait for real. And I said, why? Like, what does it say? (laughs) She's like, hold on, let me check. And she says, the note says that you're nonchalant. And I was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) I thought she's going to come back and be like, like, you're a monster. (laughs) Like I use it as a compliment too much, you know, showing up drunk to work or something, you know, it was just like nonchalant. I was just like, Oh, okay. Good day to you. (laughs) It's not the organizational fodder, the capitalistic fodder we're looking for your nonchalantism. Um, but I appreciate it It has a place here. Great. Nick. Um, so you finally encountered somebody who doesn't experience grief. How was that? Finally. (laughs) Um, well, it's good. It's good. It's a good question. Yeah. How was that? I mean, you get a sense for it in the conversation. How was it to hear me encounter that? It was just uh, remarkable. It was like, (laughs) yeah, I'm not going to come up with a great analogy, but just like, you know, finding your kryptonite in some way, or just like finding like somebody (laughs) who's like, doesn't obey the, the rules of tears, (laughs) no, no, like the rules of gravity or something, or just like some, Mm. and the way that she said it was just very like, you know, matter of fact, and dare I say nonchalant, but just like, yeah, I don't have grief, you know? And I'm sure it's like, Mm -hmm. Uh, the result of a dedication to Buddhism, but like also it is just such a plain nonchalant thing to say. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was really refreshing. Yeah. And, and, and it, and and I felt also like I felt, I did not feel dismissed by Robina. And, and I, in fact, I felt like I included a little, a little bit of in the intro and, you know, I felt, I felt acknowledged and I felt like Robina was trying to say, we need all kinds, not that Robina said that, but we need all, all kinds out in the world, engaging with these things and how we do right with our compassion. My compassion is so often articulated through tears and Robina's is not, you know, and, um, yeah, it was just refreshing to kind of meet that. And, uh, not be intimidated by it and get to dig in a little bit and say like, so, cause, cause your question says something that we address in the conversation, you know, it acknowledges actually that Robina isn't the first, but there are people out here out there who don't cry, but not because there are people like Robina, but because they maybe have that stuff turned off. And Robina could say, that's something that happens for sure. And, and, and is maybe like an unhealthy version of not feeling grief. But in, um, in the, in the couple of weeks or so since that conversation, do you, does that come back up in your head of just like mm-hmm. encountering somebody like that as you go back into grieving spaces? You know what? I, I guess it's so, it's so compelling to me because I really, am open to the possibility that as I, as I get older and I mean mature into this work, especially I could have a, a time and stage of my life where I've maybe reached some version of who Robina is in relationship to like suffering. Because there's a part of me that really believes it's possible and believes Robina as an example of what, maybe waits for me. Mm. Like I, I, I imagine on my deathbed, certainly getting grief stricken when I think about my kids needing to let go and feeling their heartbreak over my death. But then too, I wonder and hope for a version of someone grounded in the truth enough and willing to be engaged with that truth through their life's work and life, their life commitments to be someone at the end that like has understanding that, that that's not like surprised suddenly by, by an outburst of tears and grief. Someone that's understanding runs so deep that 
it's grounded and clear and present and more inclined to laughter than heartbreak. I want to be that more. I think when I go into the hospital this week, you know, when you say like in the wake of that conversation, how has it been in my head or in my heart, um, being with Robina in that way. And I think about the, the gravity, maybe the significance I put on my tears sometimes. It's like, I'm going to prove to you that I care. And the only way is, is if my tears come forth and you know, it's like, it can be performative and never forced, but practiced. And so then maybe sometimes my reliance on that expression, you know, that particular emotion, um, I could stand to like, see what it means to care a lot and not have to have that, you know, kind of catharsis. And for your appearance in the world, uh, the way that people see you, I think it's a great offering to see this large man, mm. <laughs> you know, offer yeah. this thing. And it would be different for someone like, like Rubina, because just a different way that you're received in the world by like what you look mm -hmm. like, you know? Um, yeah. So I've always thought it was really a generous thing in that sense. <laughs> and I liked us meeting in the ways we are. Yeah. It felt really sweet and fun and funny to get that. Um, I'm glad you, that that's the thing that kind of stuck with you out of the conversation. And I know from and, uh, going through like 10 day silent meditation, Buddhist meditations, like that detachment is not, um, indifference, you know, it's not like, yes, I I'm placid and I don't care about the world. Right. It's deeply caring and letting go, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's a great misunderstanding that I had before I did all that, you know, and I think still people still have like, why would I want to be like that? Why would I want to be just like, not like you wouldn't enjoy ice cream or something. It's like, no, you like fully enjoy ice cream. And then when you're done, you're not like sitting there, like wishing you had the ice cream back, you know, you're just mm -hmm. moving on, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, for letting me talk a little more about that. Definitely even just recording the intro and getting into getting the episode ready. That's something specifically that I, that I've been thinking about that we shared in this conversation. So it's cool to kind of, kind of process it a little bit here at the end. Well, thanks, Nick's Jaina. Nick's Jaina. Yeah. That's the, the proper <laughs> plural of Nick Jaina. Nick's Jaina. Yeah. It's like surgeon's thanks. general. <laughs> Nick's Jaina. And thanks listeners. Uh, we're so glad you're here. So good to be in your ear. Until next time. Bye-bye.